Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 57 Eotan Old Osborne was proud of the fact that Sedley, his enemy and benefactor, was so utterly defeated as to be forced to accept financial help from the man who had insulted him. Osborne cursed the old pauper and relieved him from time to time, and in his brutal, coarse way he gave the boy to understand that John Sedley was a wretched old bankrupt who was indebted to his generosity. George carried the money to Amelia and her father and patronized the feeble and disappointed old man. It may have shown a want of proper pride in Amelia that she chose to accept money from her father's enemy. But proper pride and this poor lady had never had much acquaintance. A long course of poverty and hard words, of kind acts and no returns had been her lot. You who see your betters bearing up under this shame every day, meekly suffering and despised for their poverty, do you ever step down from your prosperity and wash the feet of those poor, weary beggars? How mysterious and unaccountable is that lottery of life, which gives to one man fine clothes and riches and sends another rags. So, Amelia gratefully took the crumbs that her father-in-law let drop, and with them fed her own parent. It was her nature to sacrifice herself for the beloved object. During what long, thankless nights had she worked out her fingers for little Georgie? What scorns and privations had she endured for father and mother? And in the midst of all these unseen sacrifices, she did not respect herself but thought herself a poor-spirited, despicable little creature who did not deserve any good fortune. Oh, poor women! Oh, poor secret martyrs and victims, whose life is a torture, who lay your heads down on the block daily at the drawing-room table. Every man who watches your pains must pity you, and thank God that he has a beard. If you properly tyrannize over a woman, you will find a halfpenny worth of kindness will bring tears into her eyes, as though you were an angel. Amelia's life had come down to this, to a mean prison and a long, ignoble bondage. Little George visited her captivity sometimes and consoled it. Russell Square was the boundary of her prison. She might walk there occasionally, but was always back in her cell at night to watch by the thankless sick beds of tyrannous old age. How many thousands of people, women for the most part, are doomed to endure this long slavery? Hospital nurses without wages, who strive, watch, and suffer, unpitied, and fade away, unknown. 
Oh, be humble, my brothers, in your prosperity. Be gentle with those who are less lucky, if not more deserving. Think what right have you to be scornful, whose virtue is a lack of temptation, whose success may be chance, whose rank is an ancestor's accident. They buried Amelia's mother in the churchyard at Brompton, upon just such a rainy, dark day as when Amelia married George. Her little boy sat by her side in pompous new furs. Her thoughts were away in other times, as the parson read. Except that she held George's hand, perhaps she would have liked to change places with... Then she felt ashamed of her selfish thoughts, and prayed to be strengthened to do her duty. So she determined to try and make her old father happy. She slaved, toiled, patched and mended, sang and played backgammon, read out the newspapers, cooked for old Sedley, walked out with him, listened to his stories with untiring smiles, or sat musing by his side as the querulous old man prattled about his wrongs. What sad thoughts the widow had. The children running up and down in the gardens reminded her of George, taken from her like the first George. Her selfish, guilty love in both instances had been rebuked and bitterly chastised. She strove to think it was right that she should be so punished. She was a miserable, wicked sinner, alone in the world. I know that the account of this kind of solitary imprisonment is insufferably tedious, unless there is some cheerful incident to enliven it. A tender jailer, for instance, or a mouse come out to play, or a tunnel under the castle dug by a toothpick. But Amelia's captivity had no such incident. Though very sad, she was always ready to smile when spoken to. Singing songs, making puddings, playing cards, mending stockings for her old father's benefit. May we have in our last days a kind, soft shoulder on which to lean and a gentle hand to soothe our pillows. Old Sedley grew very fond of his daughter after his wife's death, and Amelia had her consolation in doing her duty by him. But better days were in store for both. Perhaps the ingenious reader has guessed who was the stout gentleman who called upon Georgie with Major Dobbin. The Major had easily succeeded in getting leave to go to Madras, and from there to Europe on urgent private affairs, and had travelled so quickly that he arrived at Madras in a high fever. His servants brought him to a friend's house in a state of delirium, and it was thought for many days that he would never travel further than the graveyard. Here, as the poor fellow lay tossing in his fever, you might have heard him raving about Amelia. In his lucid hours he thought his last day was come, and made solemn preparations for departure, leaving his little property to those whom he most desired to benefit. The friend in whose house he was staying witnessed his will. The major desired to be buried with a little brown hair chain, which he wore round his neck, and which he had got from Amelia's maid at Brussels when the young widow's hair was cut off during her illness after her husband's death. He recovered, rallied, and relapsed again. 
He was almost a skeleton when they put him on board the East Indiaman ship, and so weak that the friend who attended him through his illness thought that the honest major would never survive the voyage. But whether it was the sea air, or the hope which sprung in him afresh from the day that the ship spread her sails and set out towards home, Dobbin began to amend, and he was quite well, though as gaunt as a greyhound, before they reached the Cape. "'I think Miss O'Dowd would have done for me if we had her on board,' he said laughingly to his companion, "'and when she had sunk me, she would have fallen upon you, depend upon it, and carried you as a prize to Southampton, Joss, my boy.' For, indeed, it was no other than our stout Joss who was with him. He had passed ten years in Bengal, Constant dinners, tiffins, pale ale, and claret had their effect upon Waterloo, Sedley. A voyage to Europe was pronounced necessary for his health, and having served his full time in India and laid by a considerable sum of money, he was free to come home and stay with a good pension, or to return and resume a high rank in the service. He was rather thinner than last we saw him but had gained in majesty. He swaggered about on deck in a magnificent velvet cap with a gold band and a profusion of jewellery. He brought a native servant who wore the Sedley crest in silver on his turban. The young soldiers among the passengers used to draw out Sedley and make him tell prodigious stories about himself and his exploits against tigers and Napoleon. When they passed St. Helena, Major Dobbin, not being nearby, Joss described the Battle of Waterloo and implied that Napoleon never would have gone to St. Helena but for Joss Sedley. After leaving St. Helena, he disposed of a great quantity of claret, preserved meats, and soda water. He disappeared in a panic during a two-days gale in which he had the portals of his cabin battened down, but in general he made himself agreeable to all by his kindness and condescension. Many a night, as the ship was cutting through the roaring dark sea, the moon shining overhead and the bell singing out the watch, Mr. Sedley and the Major would sit on the quarter-deck, talking and smoking. Major Dobbin would manage to bring the talk round to the subject of Amelia and her son. Joss, a little testy about his father's applications for money, was soothed by the major, who pointed out the elder's ill fortunes. Perhaps Joss would not like to live with the old couple, but the major pointed out how advantageous it would be for Joss to have his own house in London, how his sister Amelia would be the very person to preside over it, how elegant, gentle, and refined she was. He told Joss how much admired she had formerly been by people of great fashion, and he then hinted how becoming it would be for Joss to send Georgie to a good school. The Major did not know yet what events had happened in the little Sedley family, and how riches had carried off George from Abelia. But the fact is that every day this love-smitten gentleman was thinking about Mrs. Osborne and bent upon doing her good. He coaxed and complimented Joss Sedley perseveringly to this end. The truth is, 
When Major Dobbin came on board very sick, he did not begin to rally until a conversation which they had one day as the Major was laid languidly on the deck. He said that he had left a little something to his godson in his will, and he trusted Mrs. Osborne would remember him kindly and be happy in the marriage he was about to make. Mary, not at all, Joss answered. Her latest letter made no mention of marriage. And by the way, she wrote to say that Major Dobbin was going to be married and hoped that he would be happy. From that day, Dobbin began to mend. After they passed St. Helena, his gaiety and strength astonished his fellow passengers. He larked with the midshipmen, ran up the shrouds like a boy, sang a comic song one night to the amusement of the whole party, and was generally lively and amiable. But during a calm, only ten days' sail from England, Dobbin became so impatient and ill-humoured as to surprise his comrades. He did not recover until the breeze sprang up again and was in a highly excited state when the friendly spires of Southampton came in sight. Chapter 58 Our Friend the Major Our Major had made himself so popular on board that when he and Mr. Sedley left the ship, the whole crew gave three cheers for Major Dobbin, who blushed and ducked his head in thanks. Joss, thinking the cheers were for himself, took off his gold-laced cap and waved it majestically. They landed with great dignity at the pier and proceeded to the Royal George Hotel. There, although the sight of a magnificent round of beef and a silver tankard of real British homemade brewed air greeted their delighted eyes, yet Dobbin began instantly to talk about a post-chase and wished to be on the road to London. Joss, however, would not hear of moving that evening. Why pass a night in a post-chaise instead of a downy feather bed? So the Major was forced to wait over that night and wrote to his family announcing his arrival. Joss promised to write to his own family, but didn't. He ordered a sumptuous dinner. The landlord said it did him good to see Mr. Sedley drink off his first pint of porter. Next morning, Major Dobbin was neatly shaved and dressed so early that nobody was up in the house except the boots. The Major could hear snores roaring through the corridors as he creaked about. The sleepless boots went from door to door, gathering up the footwear which stood outside each one. Then Joss's native servant arose and began to get ready his master's ponderous dressing apparatus and prepare his hookah. Then the maidservants got up. When the first waiter appeared and unbarred the door of the inn, the major ordered a post-chaise to be fetched instantly so that they might set off. He went up to Mr. Sedley's room, saying, "'Wake up, Sedley! The chaise will be at the door in half an hour!' Joss growled from under the counterpane and gave Dobbin to understand that he might go and be hanged, that Joss would not travel with him, and that it was most ungentlemanlike to disturb a man out of his sleep in that way, on which the Major was obliged to retreat. The chaise soon came up, and he could wait no longer. If he had been a newspaper courier bearing dispatches, he could not have travelled more quickly. The postboys wondered at the fees he flung amongst them. 
How happy and green the country looked as the chaise whirled rapidly from milestone to milestone, past pretty roadside inns, where the signs hung on the elms, and horses and wagoners were drinking under the trees, by old halls and parks, by rustic hamlets clustered around ancient grey churches, through the charming, friendly English landscape. Is there any in the world like it? Well, Major Dobbin passed through all this without noticing it. He drove first to his old haunt at the slaughters. Long years had passed since he saw it last, since he and George, as young men, had enjoyed many a feast there. However, the old waiter stood at the door in the same greasy black suit, receiving the Major as if he had gone away only a week before. "'What the major sings in twenty-three, that's his room,' said John. "'Roast fowl for your dinner, I suppose. "'You ain't got married. Like any warm water.' "'And with this, the faithful waiter, "'with whom ten years were but as yesterday, "'led the way up to Dobbin's old room. "'The major remembered George pacing up and down in here "'and biting his nails the day before he was married. "'What became of Captain Osborne's widow?' John said. Fine young fellow, that. Oh, Lord, how he used to spend his money. <laughs> he owes me three pound at this minute. John then retired, and Major Dobbin, with a grin at his own absurdity, chose the very smartest costume he possessed, and laughed at his own tan face and gray hair in the mirror. I'm glad old John didn't forget me, he thought. She'll know me, too, I hope and he left the inn, making towards Brompton. Every minute of his last meeting with Amelia was in his mind as he walked towards her house. A hundred changes had occurred which he vaguely noticed. He began to tremble as he walked up the well-remembered lane from Brompton to the street where she lived. Was she going to be married or not? If he were to meet her with the little boy, what should he do? He saw a woman coming towards him with a child of five. Was that she? He began to shake at the mere possibility. When he came to her gate at last, he caught hold of it and paused, his heart thumping. May God bless her, whatever has happened. Oh, sha! she may be gone from here. He went in through the gate. The parlor window was open, and there was no one in the room. The Major thought he recognized the piano, though. He knocked on the door. A buxom-looking lass of sixteen, with bright eyes, answered the knock and looked hard at the Major. He was as pale as a ghost and could hardly falter out. "'Does Mrs. Osborne live here?' Oh, "'Lord, bless me! It's Major Dobbin!' She held out both her hands. "'Don't you remember me? Polly Clapp, I used to call you Major Sugarplums!' on which, and I believe it was for the first time that he ever so conducted himself in his life, the Major took the girl in his arms and kissed her. She began to laugh and cry hysterically and called her, Ma! Pa! Brought up these worthy people, who were astonished to find their daughter in the little passage in the embrace of a great tall man in a blue frock coat. I'm an old friend, he said, blushing. "'Don't you remember me, Mrs. Clapp, and those good cakes you used to make for tea? 
I'm George's godfather. Just, just come back from India. A great shaking of hands followed. The landlord and landlady led the worthy major into the Sedley's room, whereof he remembered every single article of furniture, and there, as he sat down, they informed Major Dobbin of events in Amelia's history of which he was not aware, namely Mrs. Sedley's death, George's reconcilement with his grandfather Osborne, the widow's sorrow at leaving him, and other details. He was going to ask about the marriage question but his heart failed him. Finally, he was informed that Mrs. O. was gone to walk in Kensington Gardens with her pa, who was very weak and peevish now, and led her a sad life, though she behaved to him like an angel. "'I am very much pressed for time,' the Major said, "'but I should like to see Mrs. Osborne. Suppose Miss Polly would show me the way?' Miss Polly was charmed." She bounced away to her apartment and appeared presently in her best bonnet and her mamma's yellow shawl to make herself a worthy companion for the major. He gave the young lady his arm, and they walked away very gaily. He was glad to have a friend at hand for the scene which he dreaded somehow. He asked a thousand more questions about Amelia, and Polly answered Major Sugarplums to the very best of her power. In the midst of their walk, an incident occurred which, though very simple, gave the Major great delight. A pale young man with feeble whiskers came walking down the lane with a lady on each arm. One was a tall and commanding middle-aged female, and the other a stunted little woman with a dark face. The gentleman carried a parasol, shawl, and basket, so that his arms were entirely engaged, and he was unable to touch his hat when Miss Polly Clapp greeted him. He merely bowed his head, while the two ladies looked severe. "'Who's that?' asked the Major, amused by the group. Polly looked at him rather roguishly. "'That is our curate, the Reverend Mr. Binney.' a twitch from Major Dobbin, and his sister, Miss V. And the other lady, the little one with a cast in her eye, is Mrs. Binney. Miss Gritz, that was. Her pa was a grocer, and they were married last month, but her and Miss B have quarrelled already. The Major stood silent while Miss Polly told this history, but his head was swimming with happiness. He began to walk double-quick towards his destination, yet... He was in a great tremor as they entered the old portal in Kensington Garden Wall. Oh, there they are, said Miss Polly, and she felt him again start back on her arm. She understood the whole business. Suppose you, you run on and tell her, the Major said. Polly ran forward, her yellow shawl streaming in the breeze. Old Sedley was seated on a bench, prattling away as usual, while Amelia listened with a patient smile, scarcely hearing a word. As Polly came bouncing along, Amelia started up. Her first thought was that something had happened to Georgie, but the sight of the messenger's eager face dissipated that fear. News! News! cried Polly. He's come! Who is come? Look there! answered Miss Clapp, pointing and Amelia saw Dobbin's lean figure and long shadow stalking across the grass. Amelia started in her turn, blushed up, and, of course, began to cry. 
He looked at her. Oh, how fondly, as she came running towards him, her hands held out to him. She wasn't changed. She was a little pale, a little stouter. Her eyes were the same kind, trustful eyes. There were scarce three lines of silver in her soft brown hair. She gave him both her hands as she looked up, flushing and smiling through her tears into his honest, homely face. He took the two little hands between his own, speechless for a moment. Why did he not take her in his arms and swear that he would never leave her? She must have yielded. I, I, I have another arrival to announce, he said after a pause. Mrs. Dobbin, Amelia said, making a movement back. Why didn't he declare himself? Oh, no, no, he said, letting her hands go. Who has told you those lies? I mean your brother Joss, who has come home with me to make you all happy. Oh, Papa, Papa, Emmy cried. My brother is in England. He has come to take care of you. And here is Major Dobbin. Mr. Sedley stepped forward and made an old-fashioned bow to the Major and hoped his worthy father, Sir William, was quite well. He proposed to call upon Sir William, who had visited him a short time ago. Sir William had not called upon the old gentleman for eight years. "'He is very much shaken,' Emmy whispered as Dobbin shook hands with the old man. Although he had such particular business in London that evening, the Major took up Mr. Sedley's invitation to come home for tea. Amelia put her arm under Polly's on their return home, so that Mr. Sedley fell to Dobbin's share. The old man walked very slowly and told a number of ancient histories about himself and his former prosperity. The Major was glad to let him talk on. His eyes were fixed upon the figure in front of him, the dear little figure always present in his thoughts and dreams. Amelia was very happy, smiling and active all that evening, performing her duties as hostess with the utmost grace, Dobbin thought. His eyes followed her about as they sat in the twilight. How many a time had he longed for that moment, and thought of her far away under hot winds and in weary marches, gentle and happy as he saw her now. With Amelia to help him, he was ready to drink as many cups of tea as Dr. Johnson, and Amelia laughingly poured him cup after cup. She did not know that the Major had had no dinner, and that the table was laid for him at the slaughter's. The first thing Mrs. Audborn had showed the major was Georgie's miniature. It was not half handsome enough, of course, but wasn't it noble of Georgie to think of it for her? Worcester Papa was awake. She did not talk much about Georgie, for old Sedley did not like to hear about Mr. Osborne and Russell Square. He did now know that for some months he had been living on his rival's bounty and lost his temper if Osborne was mentioned. Dobbin told them all that had happened on board the ship, and exaggerated Joss's benevolent wishes for his father. The truth is that during the voyage the Major had impressed this duty most strongly upon his fellow passenger, soothing Joss's irritation about the bills which the old gentleman had drawn upon him, and bringing Mr. Joss to a good state of feeling about his relatives.' 
the Major stretched the truth so far as to tell old Mr. Sedley that it was mainly a desire to see his father which brought Joss home. When Mr. Sedley began to doze in his chair, it was Amelia's opportunity to talk, which he did with great eagerness, all about Georgie. She did not talk at all about her own sufferings, but everything concerning him. His virtues, talents, and prospects she poured out. She described his angelic beauty, a hundred instances of his generosity, how a royal duchess had stopped and admired him in Kensington Gardens, how splendidly he was cared for now, with a groom and a pony, how clever he was, and what a well-read teacher he had in the Reverend Veal. He knows everything, Amelia said. He has the most delightful parties. You, who are so learned yourself, don't shake your head. He always used to say you were. You will be charmed with Mr. Veal's parties. He says there is no place that Georgie may not aspire to. Look here. And she went to the piano drawer and took out a composition by Georgie as follows. On Selfishness of all the vices which degrade the human character, selfishness is the most odious and contemptible. An undue love of self leads to the most monstrous crimes and occasions the greatest misfortunes both in states and families. As a selfish man will impoverish his family and often bring them to ruin, so a selfish king brings ruin on his people and often plunges them into war. Example. The selfishness of Achilles, as remarked by the poet Homer, occasioned a thousand woes to the Greeks. The selfishness of the late Napoleon Bonaparte occasioned wars in Europe and caused him to perish himself in the miserable island of St. Helena in the Atlantic Ocean. We see by these examples that we are not to consult our own interest and ambition, but that we are to consider the interests of others as well as our own. George S. Osborne. Think of him writing such a hand and quoting Greek at his age, the delighted mother said. What a treasure heaven has given me. He is the comfort of my life and the image of, of him that's gone. Ought I to be angry with her for being faithful to him? William thought. Ought I to be jealous of my friend in the grave? or feel hurt that Amelia's heart can love only once and forever. Oh, George, how little you knew the prize you had. Dear friend, she said, pressing his hand, how good you have always been to me. Papa is stirring. You will go and see Georgie tomorrow, won't you? Not tomorrow, said poor Dobbin. I have business. He had not yet been to visit his parents and his sisters. Presently, he took his leave, and so the first day was over, and he had seen her. Chapter 59 The Old Piano The Major's visit left old John Sedley in a great state of excitement. He passed the evening fumbling amongst his boxes, untying his papers with trembling hands, and sorting them for Joss's arrival. He got out his files, his receipts, and his lawyer's letters, the documents relating to the wine project, the coal project, the patent sawmill, etc., etc. He passed the night in preparing these documents, trembling about from one room to another with a quivering candle. 
He shall find no irregularity, Emmy, the old gentleman said. Emmy smiled. I don't think Joss will care about seeing those papers, Papa. You don't know anything about business, my dear, he answered. He arranged these tuppenny documents on a side table, covered them carefully with a clean handkerchief, and solemnly asked the maid not to disturb them. Amelia found him up very early the next morning, more hectic and shaky than ever. I didn't sleep much, Emmy, my dear. I was thinking of my poor Bessie. Oh, I wish she was alive to ride in Joss's carriage once again. And his eyes filled with tears. Amelia wiped them away and smilingly kissed him and tied the old man's neckcloth and in his Sunday suit he sat from six o'clock in the morning awaiting the arrival of his son. However, the postman brought a letter from Jaws to his sister announcing that he felt a little fatigued after his voyage and should not be able to move on that day but would leave Southampton early the next morning and be with his father and mother at evening. Amelia, as she read out the letter, paused over the word mother. Her brother, it was clear, did not know what had happened. There are some splendid tailor shops in Southampton High Street, in whose windows hang gorgeous waistcoats of silk and velvet and gold and crimson. Joss, although provided with the most splendid waistcoats that Calcutta could furnish, thought he could not go to town until he had one or two of these garments, and selected a crimson satin embroidered with gold butterflies and a black and red velvet tartan with white stripes, with which he thought he might make a dignified entry into London. For Joss's former shyness had given way to a more courageous self-assertion. Though he was alarmed by the glances of the ladies, it was chiefly from a dread lest they should make love to him that he avoided them, being averse to marriage. But there was no such swell in Calcutta as Waterloo Sedley, I have heard say. To make these waistcoats for a man of his size took at least a day. At length he drove leisurely to London on the third day in the new waistcoat, his native servant shivering on the box next to the new European servant, Jaws puffing his pipe at intervals within and looking so majestic that people thought he must be a governor-general. He stopped frequently for refreshments. A glass of sherry at Winchester, ale at Alton, and at Farnham a light dinner of stewed eels, veal cutlets, French beans, and a bottle of claret. He felt cold over Backshot Heath and took some brandy and water. In fact, when he drove into town, he was as full of wine, beer, meat, pickles, cherry brandy, and tobacco as the steward's cabin of a steam packet. It was evening when his carriage thundered up to the little door in Brompton. All the faces in the street were in the windows. The maidservant flew to the gate. Emmy, in a great flutter, was in the passage, and old Sedley in the parlour, shaking all over. Joss descended from the post-chase in great state, supported by his new valet and the shuddering native, who was now bluish-gray with cold, and who created an immense sensation with the claps. We shall shut the door upon the meeting between Joss and his family. The old man was very much affected. So was his daughter. Nor was Joss without feeling. 
Joss was unaffectedly glad to see and shake the hand of his father, between whom and himself there had been a coolness, glad to see his pretty little sister, and pained at the alteration in the shattered old man. Emmy had come to the door in her black clothes and whispered to him of her mother's death, asking him not to speak of it to their father. However, the elder Sedley himself began immediately to talk of the event and wept over it. It shocked Joss and made him think about himself less than usual. After Joss had driven away to his hotel, Emmy embraced her father tenderly, asking the old man whether she did not always say that her brother had a good heart. Indeed, Joseph Sedley, affected by the humble position in which he found his relations, had declared that they should never suffer want or discomfort any more, that his house and everything he had should be theirs, and that Amelia would look very pretty at the head of his table until she should accept one of her own. She shook her head sadly, and had, as usual, recourse to the waterworks. She knew what he meant. She and young Polly Clapp had talked very fully on the night of the Major's visit, and Polly could not refrain from telling her of the discovery which he had made, and how Major Dobbin had betrayed himself by his tremor of joy when Mr. Benny passed with his bride. "'Oh, ma'am, he never kept his eyes off you, and I'm sure he's grown grey thinking of you.' But Amelia, looking up at the portraits of her husband and son, told her never to speak on that subject again, that Major Dobbin had been her husband's dearest friend and her own kind guardian, that she loved him as a brother, but that a woman who had been married to such an angel as that could never think of another union. Poor Polly sighed. She thought of young Mr. Tompkins at the surgery, whose glances at church put her timorous little heart into a flutter. What would she do if he were to die? She knew he was consumptive. His cheeks were so red, and he was so thin. Not that Emmy felt displeased with the honest major. Such an attachment from so loyal a gentleman could make no woman angry. Why, Miranda was even kind to Caliban, we may be pretty sure, for the same reason. Not that she would encourage the poor, uncouth monster. Of course not. Nor would Emmy encourage the Major. She would treat him with perfect cordiality and frankness until he made his proposals, and then it would be time enough for her to speak and put an end to his impossible hopes. She slept, therefore, very soundly that evening, and was more than ordinarily happy. "'I am glad he is not going to marry this Miss O'Dowd,' she thought. "'She could not be fit for such an accomplished man as Major William. "'Who would make him a good wife? "'Not Miss Binney. She was too ill-tempered. "'Miss Osborne? Well, too old. Little Polly was too young. "'She could not find anybody to suit the Major before she went to sleep.' The same morning, a letter came from Major Dobbin at the Slaughter's Coffee House from Joss in Southampton, begging dear Dobb to excuse him for being in a rage the day before. He had a confounded headache, and entreating Dobb to book rooms at the Slaughter's for Mr. Sedley and his servants. Joss was very lonely at Southampton. 
Once at the slaughter's, though, he could enjoy his hookah with such perfect ease, and could swagger down to the theatre so agreeably that perhaps he should have remained there had not the Major insisted that he should have a home for Amelia and his father. Dobbin was most active in anybody's concerns but his own. Joss was a soft fellow in anyone's hands, and was ready to do whatever his friend thought fit. His Indian servant was sent back to Calcutta, having taught Joss's European man the art of repairing curries, pilaus, and a pipe. Joss had a smart carriage built in which he drove about in state, frequently with Amelia and Major Dobbin. At other times, old Sedley and his daughter rode out, and Miss Clapp, who accompanied her friend, had great pleasure in being recognized, as she sat in the carriage, by the young gentleman at the surgery. Shortly after Joss's appearance at Brompton, a dismal scene took place at the Clapps' humble cottage. Joss's carriage arrived one day and carried off old Sedley and his daughter to return no more. The landlady and her daughter shed genuine tears of sorrow. They could not recall a harsh word from Amelia. She had been all sweetness and kindness, even when Mrs. Clapp lost her own temper and pressed for the rent. When the kind creature was going away, the landlady reproached herself bitterly. They would never have such lodgers again. That was quite clear. As for Miss Polly, her sorrow was such as I shall not attempt to depict. She had attached herself so passionately to Amelia that when the grand barouche came to carry her off, she fainted in her friend's arms. Indeed, Amelia loved her like a daughter, and the separation was very painful to her. But it was of course arranged that Polly would come and stay often at the grand new house where Mrs. Osborne was going, and where Polly was sure she could never be so happy as at the Clapp's humble home. Let us hope she was wrong. Poor Emmy's days of happiness in that home had been very few. Fate had oppressed her. The landlady had tyrannized over her when unpaid, and Mrs. Clapp's servility and fulsome compliments about the new house were no more to Emmy's liking. Emmy always remembered the coarse tyrant who had made her miserable, who had cried out at her extravagance if she brought delicacies for her ailing parents, who had seen her humble and trampled upon her. I hope Amelia is not to suffer more of that hard usage. And, as in all griefs, there is some consolation. I may mention that Polly, when in a hysterical condition at her friend's departure, was placed under the medical treatment of the young fellow from the surgery, in whose care she soon rallied. Emmy gave her every bit of furniture that she had at Brompton, only taking away her pictures and her piano. That little old piano, which had now passed into a plaintive, jingling old age, but which she loved for reasons of her own. Major Dobbin was exceedingly pleased when, as he was superintending the move to Joss's new house, the cart arrived from Brompton, bringing trunks and the old piano. Amelia wanted it up in her sitting-room on the second floor, next to her father's chamber. When the men appeared bearing the piano, Dobbin was quite elated. I'm glad you've kept it. I was afraid you didn't care about it. I value it more than anything I have in the world, said Amelia. 
Tell you, Amelia, cried the Major. The fact was, as he had bought it himself, it never entered into his head to suppose that Emmy should think anybody else was the purchaser. He thought that she knew the gift came from him. Do you, Amelia? he said, and the question, the great question of all, was trembling on his lips when Emmy replied, Of course, did not he give it to me? I, I did not know said poor old Dob, and his face fell. Emmy did not heed this at the time, but she thought of it afterwards, and then it struck her with inexpressible pain and mortification that it was William who was the giver of the piano, and not George. It was not as she had thought. George's gift, her dearest relic. She had spoken to it about George, played his favourite airs upon it, sat for long evening hours touching melancholy harmonies on the keys and weeping over them in silence. It was valueless now. The next time old Sedley asked her to play, she said it was shockingly out of tune and that she had a headache, that she couldn't play it. Then she rebuked herself for her pettish ingratitude and determined to make up for the slight she had not expressed to honest William, but had felt for his piano. A few days afterwards, as they were seated in the drawing-room, where Joss had fallen asleep after dinner, Amelia said falteringly to Major Dobbin, I, I, I have to beg your pardon for something. About what? Uh, about that little piano. I never thanked you for it when you gave it me. Many, many years ago, I thought somebody else had given it. Oh, thank you. Thank you, William. She held out her hand, but the poor little woman's heart was bleeding. William could hold back no more. Amelia, Amelia, I did buy it for you. I loved you then as I do now. I must tell you, I think I have loved you from the first minute that I saw you, when George took me to meet you. You were only a girl in white with ringlets. You, you came down singing. Do, do you remember... And, and we went to Vauxhall. Since then I have thought of but one woman in the world, and that was you. No hour in the day has passed for twelve years that I haven't thought of you. I came to tell you this before I went to India, but, but I hadn't the heart to speak. You did not care whether I stayed or went. I, I was very ungrateful, Amelia said. No, only indifferent. Dobbin continued desperately. I have nothing to make a woman be otherwise. I know what you are feeling now. You are hurt at discovering that the piano came from me and not from George. I forgot that, and I beg your pardon for being a fool for a moment and thinking that years of constancy and devotion might have pleaded with you. It is you who are cruel now, Amelia said with some spirit. "'George is my husband, here and in heaven. "'How could I love any other but him? "'I am his now, as when you first saw me, dear William. "'It was he who told me how good and generous you were "'and who taught me to love you as a brother. "'Have you not been our dearest, truest, kindest friend and protector? "'Had you come a few months sooner, "'perhaps you might have spared me that, that dreadful parting from my boy.' Oh, it nearly killed me, William. 
Isn't he a noble boy, William? Be his friend still, and mine. And here her voice broke, and she hid her face on his shoulder. The Major folded his arms round her as if she was a child, and kissed her head. I will not change, dear Amelia, he said. I ask for no more than your love. Only let me stay near you and see you often. Oh, yes, often, Amelia said. And so William was at liberty to look and yearn, just as the poor schoolboy with no money may sigh after the contents of the tart woman's tray. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Neimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.